Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the First Word Podcast. My name is Alex, and I'm here with my co-host. Mike. And we are excited to record a new episode today talking about the Mission Impossible series. Our special guest today is a filmmaker, an actor, and screenwriter named uh, Lee Winnell, who's from Australia. He will be joining us in a little bit, but we're going to kick off the discussion before we get into the chat with him. Um, so to get into it, Mike, um, the sixth the sixth Mission Impossible movie just came out, and it's almost 20 years since the first one came out, since the very original Mission Impossible movie. And um, I want to just first jump right in by asking you and me what how we would rank them. And I know ranking is a never-ending subjective how you feel today's situation, but based on your feelings today, what do you think about the Mission Impossible movies? How do you rank them? Okay, well, first I'm going to start off with a caveat that my least fit, the, the worst one is number two, but you'll never convince me that it is not a fun movie and enjoyable and I love it and it's an all-time oh, favorite of mine. None of these things, Mike. Guilty pleasure. But in order of best to worst i would go three the jj abrams one is my favorite is the best uh six one five four two so fallout is my second favorite really close actually behind three and might leapfrog it over time it's hard I, I don't like ranking this close to seeing a movie but you know and i think the original mission impossible is is incredible so it's really a matter of two sides here the top three and the bottom three I mean, I'm pretty much with you. Um, I really, really, really love the first one. It's one of those kind of films I can watch at any time, which is amazing because it's kind of dated, but it, it, it's easily like still just as entertaining and, and captivating. Um, and I also really love Fallout, and I also really love the J.J. Abrams, so it's hard for me to put those together. I would almost say one for me is the best, then Fallout, then Abrams then Ghost Protocol, then Rogue Nation, then the second one. I hate the second one so much, which we'll get into. But actually, I want to mention something quickly. It's just I really didn't like Rogue Nation. I have some weird beef with it where I felt like all they did was just write these action scenes and the connection between them is so tenuous and, and boring that it's just this like pointless action scenes very loosely tied together. And I felt like it was so obvious. And then I felt like Fallout is actually them learning that mistake and improving upon it. But that's something we'll get into later into a bigger discussion. But um, I also want to say there's, there's something about, aside from the first one, which, which we will talk about, the third one has one of my favorite scenes ever, which is the scene where they strap um, Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain, who's a, probably the best villain out of any of them in the whole series. So in the airplane, and he, like, holds him out of the airplane. And I, like, the first time I saw it, I was like, get the fuck out of here. Because there's nothing more thrilling than that. Like, a lot of action and, and death-defying moments in movies are like, you know, they don't really scare me. Like, okay, you're hanging off the side of a building. Okay, it's a little scary. But even in IMAX, it doesn't bother me. But that whole moment of, like, while the airplane is, like, flying, it just... And it was so effective. And the way Philip Seymour Hoffman plays that scene was just, oh, my God, perfect. Um, and I really love that moment. It's just still one of the most vibrant things in my mind, even now. It came out in what, 2006. So, like, 12 years later, I can still think about that every little moment and, and reaction in that whole scene. It's just awesome. And then, of course, there's that other moment in 3 where, like, he's running on the bridge and the, miss the, the missiles are hitting. And, like, there's some really great... Great stuff in that movie. Yeah, the Bay Bridge scene is 
is one of my favorites. Uh, especially because at that at that point, I was just graduating high school, and it came out like the year I was a senior in high school, and the Bay Bridge was very close to where I uh, where I lived. So I was very like I was excited to see that on screen as an action movie. That definitely helped, but I also feel like um, honestly, three is is the most focused in terms of um, creating a story and a character and motive that isn't just based on some shit that came up in a, you know a disposable CD that's gonna light on fire in five seconds or something. Like <laughs> yeah. it was its own movie and it personalized the strife for Ethan Hunt and and it made him more than just a you know a five foot six dude that runs a lot. It, it was yeah. it, it gave him a family. It just it was great. I loved it, and um, I think that's there's a lot to be said for that. And I'm actually I'm happy that it's become part of the thread as they continue to make these movies without being the only thread. You know, like Bond, and I have a feeling we'll talk about Bond a lot. But like Bond has done a thing lately where they've really tried to bridge the movies with love interests, and I think they've done a good job of that. But at the same time, it's never the only thing. It's not the, the reason. It's not the plot. It's not one love interest plot drawn out over three movies. It's just a way of bridging things. Um, yeah. So I thought that was cool. But, you, you know, I, I, I want to go back to what you said about Ghost or Rogue Nation because, like, Rogue Nation itself is, um, yeah, very much an action movie in the sort of, like, uh, in the way that it, it's forgettable in a lot of um, specifics, like you wouldn't remember most of the reasons why anybody was doing anything in that movie. You wouldn't really remember much about the, the story and the plot, but like the opera scene is, is an all time beautifully constructed scene. I've never seen geography in an action scene done quite that well. I think done better than Dunkirk, which is a whole movie based on, you know, action geography. So I think that, that, that takes it up a notch for me. Um, but yeah, still is yeah. behind the three best movies, which is the first one, the third one, and the sixth one. Which hopefully that means we're not three movies away from another great one. But yeah, yeah, you never know. And ten years or whatever it takes. I mean, the only other thing I want to I want to talk about before we get on with with Lee is that um, I always felt like, and this has been on my mind rewatching a couple of the older ones, that the whole origin of the Mission Impossible. Um, at least the later ones a little bit, is based on James Bond in the sense that there's literally a musical intro after an action scene, which is a James Bond creation. And it, it's the spy concept with technology and with, you know, Benji is the cue of the movie. And, you know, they have all these kind of spyish uh, themes and motifs and, and um, things that they're borrowing but that it's not the same as Bond, which I like. Because, you know, as a Bond fan, I don't want to see repeats and copies of it. Like Mr. Bean, I want to see something different and unique. And I always felt that, but then I always felt like they were able to find their own edge and, and create something individual. And, of course, it's based on the TV series. But but also just that I'm intrigued by how Bondish they are, but also not Bond they are. And I don't know if you agree with me. No, I do agree with you, but I, I, one thing I wanted to bring up was, um, I think it was this one, but I'm kind of starting to conflate all of these movies together because I, I watched one through five twice over the last of the two weeks before watching this. I did two binges. But um, Benji remote controls a car 
with a phone in this movie. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it Very looks like Tomorrow Never Dies. Just like was it Tomorrow Never Dies or Goldeneye? Uh, no, Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh well, yeah, it was. So it was like reminded me right of it. I was waiting for him to jump yeah. in the back seat, and I was I was like, ooh, do it, because it looks just like that moment. Um, I I'm sure it didn't escape them that that looked a little bit like that Bond moment. I mean, yeah, you, they, you can't you can only make so many of these movies before things start to be uh, start start to overlap. Like you can only yeah, do it so many times, and I imagine that's a really difficult task for them to make sure that they never feel like it's just a Bond knockoff. Because even though Ethan Hunt and the Mission Impossible movies have created their own identity, they are not James Bond movies. It, it it's still a, a huge burden on that franchise to never look like a Bond movie because Bond is never worried about looking like a Mission Impossible movie. It only goes the other way. I understand, and I, they they downplay that car moment so quickly. It's like get the car, and then he gets it, and that's it. And it that's what that's the good thing about these movies is that they don't feel like too much of a of, of a Bond steal or anything like that. They are so great on their own. Speaking of other movies that were we were reminded of during this. Uh, I couldn't help myself, but during the club scene, wanting to... It reminded me of Collateral. The music was similar. The way Tom Cruise was was walking through the crowd was similar. I was, like, ready for him to have a fist fight and then, like, break someone's neck with his foot and stomp on him, just like he does in Collateral. It would have made me so happy. (laughs) It definitely feels like McQuarrie did his research before the movie watched other tom cruise movies like i know he he made a tom cruise movie before this actually made a couple right um yeah as a screenwriter yeah yeah but i feel like he just rewatched a lot of movies and he was like okay what are the things i like in all these other action movies that that could be really fun to implement in a way because you know i think the downfall of fallout over time is going to be how action focused it is. I think it's it it's it feels really good right now, but I wonder how we're going to feel in 5 years, in 10 years when we look back and we don't really remember why any of it happened. It never was important. It's just the action was so good. It was so well paced. It was so fluid and the transitions were smooth. But, like, the why of it was not important. And it never really has been in any of the Mission Impossible movies. But now we're, we're all talking about Fallout like it's a game changer. And it might be. But all these game changers don't really do... They don't really change the game. Like, we're not seeing um, a huge spike in motion capture outside of Disney. Like, pretty much Disney and Marvel are the only people doing that. And they've been the only people doing it. And... We're not really seeing a huge spike in um, whatever the Dark Knight gave us um, ten years ago. We were ago. for a few. We were for a few years, but we then were, it kind of. But it was the wrong thing, right? They were focusing on the darkness and the seriousness, yeah. not what made that movie good, which was a, a, a litany of other things. Um, yeah. I want to bring that up later. Let's let's bring in Sir Lee Winnell. Who um, is a uh, filmmaker, actor, writer? You mostly know him as the creator of the Saw series, um, co-created with James Wan, and the creator of the Insidious series. And most recently, he's been directing. And um, his film this year was Upgrade, which was awesome. And his first debut as a director was Insidious Chapter Three. 
Um, and I highly recommend watching Upgrade. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, Lee a couple weeks ago, months ago, when the film came out, and um, we're glad to have him on to talk about something different because uh, this is a film geek discussion. So thank you for joining yeah. us. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm, I, I can't believe that I told you to call me Sir Lee Winnell and it worked. <laughs> Right, <laughs> you are you are an honored special guest today, and you are from another country other than America. So therefore, we have to give you this this extra special honor. <laughs> we'll do the knighthoods yeah. around here. I wanted to get into Mission Impossible because not only is Fallout out, but I've been arguing with Mike for many years now about various Mission Impossible series. Um, and so to to just start the discussion, actually, one of the things I want to get into first with Mission Impossible is the idea that the first movie came out, um, let's see, 1996, which was a long time ago. Um, and I remember when it came out that I think I'd heard about it, but it didn't really hit me that it's based on a TV series. And for me, as a young kid who wasn't alive when the series came out, I never really knew about it. I've never even followed up and watched it. I've always only ever been into the films. Um, so one question I want to ask you, Lee, is did this series ever make its way to Australia? Were you ever familiar with it? Or has everyone kind of just gotten into Mission Impossible from the films and just followed along with the films? I think it probably did screen in Australia because, you know, any popular American TV show screens in Australia. I mean, uh, uh, if you if you go to Australia, uh, just uh, just like when I was a kid and still today, you'll see the same American TV shows and the same American movies filling up the multiplexes. Um, in fact, Australian producers have problems getting Australian audiences to watch Australian films because mostly Australian audiences just want to watch Hollywood films. So <laughs> I, I, I'm going I'm to presume it was, and I may have seen it. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how much younger you are than I, but I, I definitely remember in the 80s watching a lot of sort of... Um, American television, like your Knight Rider stuff, and and I'm, I, I I may have seen an episode of it, but certainly nothing that I can really remember. I'm I'm kind of like you in that I went into that first Mission Impossible, knowing I think people know that theme song, which is yeah. which is weird for it's weird that the theme song is kind of a pop cultural touchstone, but the series not not so much. Um, and in a way, that was probably smart of Tom Cruise because when he decided to turn it into a movie, he didn't have a lot of things that people were looking, uh, scrutinizing him for. You know, if, if, if you try to make a TV show, a, a movie out of Breaking Bad or something, everyone's going to be watching you. But with, with that film, I guess he had a lot of freedom. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, that's it. it. It feels so long ago. That this original first Mission Impossible came out, but I still really love this film, and I remember loving it when I first saw it, and I and I can still watch it anytime and still love it. And it set such a great precedent for the series, which then has progressed over the remaining twenty years now um, through different iterations and different variations. And what I like, and and Mike mentioned this to me before we started recording, but that what I really like about this series is that every one every one of the six films is kind of different in their own way. And they each have something new to offer, not only thanks to the filmmakers, but in a way where they're like, hey, we don't have to do the same thing other than stick to like the action movie model and the devices like the masks and the technology. Yeah, which, yeah. yeah you, you're right. It, it is kind of an, an interesting franchise. I mean, I loved that first film because at the time when it came out, I was at film school in Melbourne in Australia and I was a huge Brian De Palma fan. 
I was like really getting into Brian De Palma and all his early films. And, you know, Brian De Palma is such a film school filmmaker. <laughs> you know, he, he, he's the type of guy that you start loving when you go to film school. And um, so I remember, I remember seeing it and being so excited and just thinking it was so cool. And I think, I think you're right. I think not only have they employed different directors for uh, each movie, except for the last two, but they, <laughs> they only retain a few elements. You know, it, it, it's, it's almost the only franchise in the world other than the Bond movies that is so malleable and durable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost um, age-proof. Like, they, they could keep going. The, the only thing is, the only factor is, unlike Bond, I don't know if you can replace Tom Cruise. Mm. You know, I don't know if you can put another Ethan Hunt in there um, and, and it'll be the same. I always figured that they were going to retire him in some way. Like in the third one and the fourth one or something, I thought like, okay, they're going to kill him off and he's going to be done. And somehow like Jeremy Renner's character is going to like be worked in or something like that. I think I was, I think I was genuinely worried about Jeremy Renner's character. In, right. <laughs> I was like, no, don't let like, like, cause he, they were playing him as like the new guy. And I was like, oh, I don't want to see him like work up the chain and, and, you know. I, know. Well, yeah, I mean, they did that with the Bourne franchise, didn't they? They're like, ah, Damon doesn't want to do it anymore. Let's get Renner. <laughs> Jeremy Renner in, is, is the like Shia LaBeouf of this series compared to Indiana Jones, where everyone's just the whole movie. Like, please don't make a explicit reference to him being the next main character of this franchise. <laughs> we're not happy with that. We're not ready. Yeah. I have. Exactly. I only have one question that that I think is is how you start a conversation about the Mission Impossible franchise, and and, and it, it's for you, Lee. Yeah. What is your opinion on number two? <laughs> number two is my least favorite, which I'm gonna say that a lot of people would say that. Um, I was I was really curious about it because so much of it was filmed in Australia. Like I, you know, a lot of. Hollywood movies are shot in Australia, you know, the Matrix films or Superman, but but they don't, but they're not set in Australia. They're just using Sydney or Melbourne as a backdrop to shoot. What was exciting to me as an Australian was that this movie was actually going to feature my home country. You know, it was going to be Sydney. So it was, very, it was, I think it's the least sure-footed. And I was, and I'm, and I'm a huge fan of John Woo. So I thought for sure. I, I just thought this film can't lose. It's got John Woo. It's you know it's going to be set in Australia. It's Mission Impossible, and, and you know what? I haven't watched it recently, and and maybe you guys can tell me, but I just remember being so disappointed. Like it was the least sure of itself of all the movies, yeah. and then three was kind of the comeback. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I watched it uh, yesterday just like to try and catch up with it, and I remember just still despising every last aspect well, of it. What can you tell me what is it about it, given that you watched it so recently? What is it about it that doesn't work or, or isn't good? Like what Love are the I feel like they, they, especially after the first one from what De Palma created with that, which is like a really, it's almost a noir-esque, like slick spy thriller more than um, action. It's more the like intelligence of it. Whereas this one was more like, let's just go. And I like Wu's action, but just like, let's just go insane with the action in the most careless story ever. Like the way I was even just thinking like the whole, the, uh, the, the, the angle of what they're going for. I think it's like the, the chimera virus and like, he has to stop. This was just so like careless in, in, right. in trouble. And I'm just like, what? 
like all the performance, like even, and I know we all saw this, like I remember seeing it in the summer hyped at the cinema to be like, yes, finally. And I know we all saw this in that opening scene, which just sets the bar for what we're going to get with like the fourth wall breaking eye and like the super cheesy rock climbing. You're just like, is this really what Mission Impossible needs after what De Palma gave us? I felt like it was, like you're saying, he didn't really, I, I feel like they hired Wu because he was a great action director and they thought he would be fitting for the film, but I feel like he just never understood what Mission Impossible should be and could never really craft it into anything other than like this cheesy set in Australia action film. And that's all there was to it. May I? <laughs> Mike hit Mike to the defense. Okay. Listen, this movie Mike needs this movie needs people like me. Okay, I'm doing a service here, and um, look, I'm not an idiot. I know the movie is uh, the worst of all of them, but I think that there's a difference uh, between a movie being bad and a movie like um, not making any sense or not fitting in. My favorite thing about Mission Impossible franchise is that number two exists. It, when, the more movies they make, the more I like the second one. Because why, why is that? It, I, I, I can't fully explain it. In, in, in the same way that you love anything in this world that doesn't shouldn't be loved, it's the way I love that movie. And it's not a guilty pleasure per se. I, I genuinely love like the style of the movie. It's fun for me. Um, I, I find myself as a kind of movie buff that likes Transformers movies and... Um, Moonlight, you know, like I'm capable of seeing all movies and liking all movies. Not to say that anyone who doesn't do that is doing it wrong. I just, I don't know what it is about that movie that it's always had a special place for me. And it might be when it came out in my life. You know, it may have just been that, like I, I latched onto it at a time when I was really becoming obsessive about movies and wanting to actually make movies. And there's something about. It's just like, oh, sweet. So it's like that's how slow-mo works, and that's how you get two characters to do something you've never seen before, like um, show down on a motorcycle and jump into the air and collide with each other. Again, like I'm not making a good case for the movie. I'm not trying well, it's to. All, it's, all, it's all subjective. I, 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 I don't buy into any um, definitive opinions when it comes to movies because it's all subjective. So And plus – being a filmmaker myself and having uh, been on the other side, I've, I've been facing the arrows rather than sh firing them off. Although I was a critic briefly on an Australian TV show, <laughs> but um, I, I forgive. It's a miracle that any movie turns out good. So I'd always be reticent to say that a movie is bad, but, um, but, but, you know, I can see why you like it given that explanation that you just like how, well, I also love that I love how ridiculous it is and how it almost feels like a sidebar. And the more these movies come out, the more like a sidebar it feels. But I also I think a huge credit is owed to Hans Zimmer, who made one of the most enjoyable scores of like the century with that movie, where it's almost like someone said, hey, Hans, here's the movie. Um, good luck. And he's like, I'm going to make the most kick ass score for this movie better than it deserves to be elevated by music um, since it's not holding itself yeah. up by plot or by like character <laughs> development you're, or anything. You're definitely, you're definitely making me want to check it out, which is a victory uh, for Mission Impossible too. Like I want to, now that I've listened to you, I'm, I'm going to grab it on iTunes. But I, I have an interesting view of Mission Impossible as a series because 
I did love that first one. And I remember being like, yeah, this is cool. This is such a fun Hollywood action movie. This is, this is when Hollywood does things right. But in my opinion, the series really hit its stride with this last one. This, to me, to me, Fallout is far and away the best of them, in my humble opinion, to such a degree that when I walked out of the theatre, I saw it in IMAX, you know, and I always like to sit close to the front when I go to IMAX theatres. I want to be in the movie. And um, I walked out of there like, oh, my God, this series just got started. Like this, this, this is, it feels to me like a whole new landscape. And, and I would even say that I feel like that movie has changed the landscape for action movies going forward. Like it's, yeah. it's really stayed with me because I, I just the level of practicality, like I, I, can't, I cannot believe that Tom Cruise actually did that stuff. Like any action movie from now on that features CG or stuntmen is just going to seem lame. Like it's, it's incredible. And I've been watching those behind the scenes videos on YouTube and there, I don't know if you guys have watched them as well, the sort of making of fallout videos, but they're amazing. Like Tom, it like even saying this to you guys right now, I cannot believe that Tom Cruise actually flew those helicopters. And, yeah. and I didn't, I didn't know that um, going into the movie when I was, I knew that um, a lot of the stunts were practical, but I didn't know that he was actually flying the chopper. It was, I only learned that when I watched the behind the scenes video. So I want to go back and see it again, just to re sort of uh, reappreciate it. So I just think this new latest one is a whole new level for the series. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, you know, because that was something I wanted to talk about here as well. When this franchise became um, a, not only a must-see, but a we-must-have-the-next-one. And, you know, I mean, the first one was a legitimately great movie. Like, it stands on its own. It didn't need any sequels to be good. The sequels don't really have anything to do with it, although they finally tap back into it with some, like, subtle plot um, hints at the, in the newest one that we can touch on later. But, you know, when they made two, I think what frustrates a lot of people in the first place is that it, it was not just a road bump or a detour. It was a straight-up, like, uh, head-on collision um, for whatever track this franchise was going on. It, it changed the course completely, and now there's no real design. There's no idea what this is supposed to be. It's not a franchise. It's just a random, like, sequel. And then J.J. comes on board and makes Mission Impossible 3, which in and of itself is, again, like, kind of a standalone movie. It, it, it redefined all the things that Ethan Hunt as a character, what meant what were important to him. It didn't have anything to do with the first two movies. So, you know, you're, you're bal the balancing act of are we making a serialized movie about one character or are we making an action movie franchise with some thread that makes them all connected? Well, it's, I, it's weird in that way, isn't it? Because if you, if you think about it, that really the Mission Impossible films have just become set pieces with Tom Cruise doing stunts. And I, I think they're finally starting to solidify uh, I, uh, there's, there's the <laughs> I think I think that train went off the track and through the apartment. Um, I, uh, I, sorry, I think I think they're finally starting to solidify 
a dynamic between the team. Like this is this is another one of the many things that makes this franchise interesting to me is that it took like five movies to find its footing. But I think I think now if they can go forward with Tom Cruise, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, and Ving Rhames, if they can if they can go forward with those particular characters, that means that this series finally has something of um, finally has some version of continuity because you're right for the first three, four movies, it was just all over the place. It was like each movie would just forget the last. And it would, the, the only thing linking the characters was that his name was Ethan Hunt, but it was kind of crazily all over the map. Whereas now I finally feel like people are going to go back, not just for Tom Cruise doing stunts, but also for Simon Pegg and Rebecca Ferguson, which is something they've never really, it took him a while to get that. Yeah, and I, what, my favorite thing, honestly, uh, if I really minimize it all, my favorite thing is that this is a movie franchise that's centered around a spy, essentially. I guess he's a spy. I mean, he's whatever. And it's not about how good he is at having sex with women. Like, I know that that's not all James Bond is about. But at its core, it's like a requirement. James Bond has to hook up with hot chicks. Uh, it has to be suave. And suddenly they've taken a, a, a narrative approach to that where now he's doing it because he actually needs to like uh, continue the plot and this attractive woman is in the way. Um, that's like the <laughs> new way of James Bond doing that. But like these movies, it, he's, he has spent, I think, something around 15 seconds of screen time having uh, any kind of sexual interaction with a woman. And like for some reason, I think that that's actually a huge strength because it allows us to focus on things that drive plot and aren't just like these weird action movie requirements for the you know the 23 year old boy in the crowd that wants yeah, to see. Yeah, totally. A I mean, especially for this day and age, and I think the one advantage that this series has over James Bond is that it's about a team, not one guy, not one solitary guy. Like um, that's the sort of genius um, approach of Mission Impossible is it's a team. So you can, yeah, but you should, you, you know, you said something interesting before you were talking about when the, asking the question, when did this series kind of lock into place? For me, for me, it was actually Rogue Nation. <laughs> that was the, that was the first time that I was like, since the first one that I was like, oh, this is this is really good. Like I liked the movies before that. I liked Ghost Protocol and I, I liked three. But I think Rogue Nation was the first time everybody got their shit together for okay. me. Do you, do you like Rogue Nation? Yeah, I do. I, I, I like it. I, I like Fallout better. But I, I for me, for me, like... Um, you know, Rogue Nation it was the was the sort of baby step towards towards Fallout. Like, I, you know, in my, in my opinion, yeah. I the interesting thing to me is that um, reading about and listening to what Christopher McQuarrie has been saying about making these two is that they they what what he's been doing specifically is the idea where he envisions and comes up with the action scenes then they craft the script around it. Like he's even said he went into Fallout without a complete script. <laughs> I, know. I saw that same interview yeah. myself. And you know what? It really feels like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like it, it totally feels like a movie where they just built bridges between the stunt scenes. Like 
like for instance, when 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 Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill uh, do that skydive, that halo jump into Paris, why are they doing that? Why didn't they just catch the plane to Paris? I forget. Yeah. Did I miss something? Like there's absolutely no reason. But by the way, having said that, I should say that that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And I cannot believe that they shot it for real, that Tom Cruise really jumped out of a freaking plane. It's awesome. I'm so but, frustrated about that. I love that he did it for real. I, I, I can't get enough of it. You can feel it when they jump out of the plane, no doubt. But like having a choreographed um, like scene in midair, that's amazing. And then I watch the movie and there's a storm, okay? The whole background is now erased and replaced with a, with a lightning storm. Why did they even do this in the first place? Like, I get that it's great for marketing and great for Tom, but like, why bother? Why not just fucking put yourself in um, a thing with, in, with air and film it normal? It's because it's, it's, it's this, it's that Tom Cruise thing. It's like, it's like, it's, it's, it's not, it's not noteworthy if he doesn't actually jump out of a plane. The thing that the thing that makes it awesome is that he did jump out of the plane. And actually, this movie has made me reevaluate re Tom Cruise in a big way. Like, you know, I've always thought he's like the movie star's movie star. I mean, even his name, I mean, Tom Cruise. He's like a. Mm. He's like. It's like he was created in a lab by Hollywood. <laughs> and and but but this movie. This movie, this movie's made me rethink everything about him because I thought he was just your average movie star. I thought he was a charismatic guy who could deliver a line, and then when it came down to the hard stuff, the stuntman stepped in. I had no idea that he actually rides the motorbikes himself and jumps out of the plane. Like he's he's basically become for me in one movie, he's become a mixture of like Brad Pitt and Jackie Chan. Like awesome. he, it's like. Who who else do you know? Name one other person who who does that, who do, who does those stunts. There's not one other actor in the world who would learn to fly a helicopter and do those stunts. No one's crazy enough to do it. And I'm like totally like new level of respect for Tom Cruise. Like can't believe it. That's I mean, this is what is makes them so interesting is that that you can actually craft a movie around that. And I and I imagine Tom Cruise has a say in what the action scenes are. Like I would love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings. Like they just sit down. He's like, let's just go jump out of a plane. Well, I did. I did watch um, uh, one of the behind the scenes videos I watched. He was talking about that very thing, and he said that you know he he has all these things that he's good at, like he motorbike riding and skydiving, and so. He'll, he, he was saying in the video that he'll gear the action scenes around stuff that he can actually do. Mm. Um, um, and so it's amazing. It's just... Uh, well, and, and you know what? I think the counterpoint to my frustration with the Halo jump, for example, is that, yes, you could put him in an air tunnel, um, get a nice set camera shot, make it look super real, maybe even do that cool new thing they're doing in big budget action movies where they make a screen behind them that is the real thing so it's not actually a green screen. Sure, you yeah. could do that. You'd save a yeah. bunch of money, probably not have to worry about him dying, all that stuff. But what you don't get is the camera work. And, I don't, I, and while Tom Cruise's effort 
and commitment is without question the headline. I think the unsung hero is always going to be that camera guy. That guy who's able to jump out of the plane with him, holding the camera on his head, and still get the shot. Still know how to manufacture I know. the I mean, frame. It's, it's, it's right, like you amazing. feel like you're falling because we are falling. If it was a stationary camera or with a shake or something, it yeah. just wouldn't feel as real. And that's where that's where the realism comes in and just unreplaceable. I was, I was trying to think, has any other movie done this before where the actors actually jumped? And then I remembered Point Break where uh, Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze really did jump out of the plane. Um, but but um, can I ask you this? What? Um, so they did it for real. They jumped out of the plane. Do you guys know, was the, was the background, was, was Paris, was that um, put in digitally later? Like what I'm asking is, did they actually jump out of a plane over a desert? Abu Dhabi was, was they, they did it over an airport in Abu Dhabi. And then they digitally removed it for Paris. And, and the, but the follow-up question I have to that, and I tweeted this to McQuarrie when he was answering a bunch of people on Twitter. And, I, you know, I, I mean, you're never going to get answered. It's like winning a little lottery to have a director answer you on Twitter or something. But um, what I wanted to know, and hey, Alex, since you have a, a hotline to, to people, maybe you can get this answer for me, is, <laughs> okay. do you know, what came first? What was the chicken and the egg there? Was the storm first or was the jump first? Did they always know that they were going to have that narrative little hiccup where, oh, we can't jump because there's a lightning storm. And then, you know, Henry Cavill says, fuck you, I'm jumping. And then that becomes part of that scene. Because ultimately it didn't, It you know, it was like a television show moment where everything is fixed by the end of the scene. Where it's like, oh my it was, God. It was kind of pointless, wasn't it? Like... It, it was um, it was like nothing. They they landed and then they just got on with their. It was all for the life. joke, right? I feel like it was, it was all there joke. just for that one joke, which was good. But uh, I would have to yeah. guess that the first thing they came up with was the jump. So someone in a meeting, like Tom Cruise or someone, said, "Why don't we do a skydive sequence? I'll actually jump out of a plane." And then then they reverse engineered it. That's my guess. That they were like, "Okay, so." What about some extra danger? Um, what about if there was a lightning storm? Okay, and then, and then you sort of build build backwards to plug it in. That that's what it kind of smelled of to me. And I, but, I uh, I'm curious about you know, like I the, one of the my favorite things Tom Cruise said uh, along the way with this movie promotion was that he keeps telling these producers that we're gonna keep making these movies until I'm dead. And I've never come as close to dying as I did on this movie. He didn't tell, and he wouldn't say what stunt it was. But like, it, I I do believe him. He said I will. He said if I will die on one of these movie sets. That's what wow. he said. And I keep trying to find out where I heard that, but I I know. It's a scary day for Hollywood. But like, it's kind of amazing that that uh, this is the literally hill he wants to die on is this movie franchise is like i'm gonna test the boundaries of cinema from a stunt perspective and i'm gonna do it i'm gonna fill my bucket list for the audience but the, the fallout is the best example of them actually making a truly entertaining and dare i say somewhat inspiring story about action like like they strung all the sequences together but then also to me more so than rogue nation finally give us something where of course it's a little hammy but but at the end where angela bassett's like 
we want people who fight for the individual person and save a million people. We want everyone. Like, there's actually something here where I feel like it's not just this, hey, we're never going to be the same person who's jumping out of planes into Paris to save the world. But I feel like what he's achieving with this film in particular is more so uh, a more, like, comprehensive piece that can reach audiences than just this typical spy thriller. Like, we're never going to be James Bond. What I love about the films is... I mean, I love that they acknowledge that they are a little bit ridiculous. Like that final line, spoiler alert, in Fallout when Tom Cruise, when they're like, hey, how long, be- how long did we have before the bomb went off? And he's like, the usual. Like, I love, I, love, I love those winks because it says to me that the filmmakers and the actors know that this film is kind of exists in a heightened universe. It's kind of ridiculous. Like... That I feel like that lets them get away with a lot that, like, say, like the Bourne movies could never get away with. They were a bit more kind of pious and and serious, whereas like these all bets are off for these movies because it's patently crazy. Like they acknowledge that, you know. Yeah, and that's what they 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 truly embrace the concept of like it's an impossible mission, and in a way where it's not like really real, in a way where like it's a movie impossible mission, you know. And I love that they like yeah. like I was when I was rewatching um, uh, Ghost Protocol, and when he has to climb outside of the Burj Khalifa and climb on the windows, it was just because they're like, well, there's no other way to get to the server room, and he's like, what about the elevator? What about this? And they're like, no, the only way. It's almost get on the side of the building. (laughs) It's exactly the same as seen in uh, in in Rogue Nation when it's like, no, uh, the you know the company's employee information is kept underwater in this tank. (laughs) Yeah, but you know who delivers that information every time is Benji, and I feel like that he is the sort of like he's he's the human unsung hero of these movies. I mean, his ability to. And I don't know if this is Simon Pegg or the character, but there's something about that Benji character that I genuinely am scared for him. And he seems genuinely afraid (laughs) of dying. He got into all this for whatever reason, and now he's in it, and he he feels an obligation to stay in it and, and help Ethan Hunt and do that thing. But he also has this comedic sort of like, blase approach to okay well you're gonna just climb outside the building i have the tech for it don't worry about it it's your (laughs) life it's not my life but then every once in a while they're getting better at this too um you know they 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 put him in harm's way and you get these moments where he's like genuinely afraid of dying and i honestly thought they were gonna kill him in this movie because they were like leaving breadcrumb trails along the way with tom cruise every once in a while saying i will save you very deliberately yeah, and, right. Like I really, I was starting to believe halfway through the movie that Benji's going to die, and that's going to be this huge guilt trip moment that's going to sort of change the tone of these movies forever. And I was having this huge big Iron Man three moment in my head, and like, I was like, "Stop, just watch the movie." That raises something interesting with about where I hope these films go from here. Like for the next for the next Mission Impossible movie, here's my here are my wish wishes. Uh, I, I'm really hoping that they keep Chris, Chris McQuarrie on, which I'm assuming they're going to do as writer and director. And I hope they keep the same team, which I'm assuming they're going to do. I hope they go even more balls out with the stunts, which I'm assuming they're going to do. But one thing I, I don't want them to forget is the sort of intrigue 
I, I did one thing I love about this series, which they did really well in the first one, is are those moments of intrigue. There's a there's a scene I love in the first Mission Impossible when Tom Cruise is sitting in the restaurant with the other guy in front of that giant fish tank, and he realizes that it's a setup. And Brian De Palma shoots it so well, where he where he look where Tom Cruise looks over and he's like that waiter over there, and he's like, "This is a setup." It's got that really fun. I feel like some of the Mission Impossible movies have lost that, and I I hope it just doesn't become a stunt thing where it's like, hey, check out the latest crazy thing that Tom Cruise did. I want him to I want him to keep up the intrigue part of it. I mean, do you guys feel like that was missing from Fallout? A little bit, but there's still some of it because it is so much like double crossing. Like Henry Cavill's character is kind of like the the I mean he's involved in it obviously from the very beginning but like from the moment he gets introduced you're kind of like wait a minute what's going on with him is there going to be something more there but it's not as strong as the first few movies which had it more like the first like you said the scenes in the first one where everything doubles back and even even the reappearance um in the first one when uh uh, uh he dies um I can't forget I can't forget his name right now but uh when he dies and then he comes back and you're like he's alive like they haven't had that kind of moment again. At all. Yeah, that's there, there's something there's something I wish they would take from that first film, which is what you're talking about. It's that great. There was just that beautiful sense of everything's not as it seems, and it was shot. I love movies. One movie I love is. Are you guys fans of the movie Sneakers? Yes, I love Sneakers. I love it. Oh, so. I'm such a big fan of Sneakers, and I love. There's those great. I guess I don't know how to describe it. I'm probably going to articulate myself terribly, but there's a type of scene in kind of a spy intriguey movie where everybody realizes is starting to realize the truth. Like, um, like when they're in sneakers, when they've stolen that thing and they realize what it is that it, that it can bring down planes. It's just amazing. And I felt like the first mission impossible really had that, so I, I, I really, my perfect Mission Impossible movie would be the stunts of Fallout with, mixed with the, the intrigue of Mission Impossible 1. That would be my perfect one. Yeah. You know, you brought up an interesting point, though, um, because I mentioned this the other day in conversation with somebody. Can you right now name more than, or, or any, name any of the MacGuffins in the Mission Impossible movies? <laughs> oh man it's tough yeah no really ha i mean the last one's fresh in my mind so it was those plutonium uh those balls of plutonium that sure. had gone missing yeah. right it's, any of the other ones though they don't you don't remember them right yeah and that's the bad thing because a lot of them are like these world ending but like extremely cheesy like the the, the only one because i had seen it recently that i knew was the chimera virus like they were the whole movie they were playing it up like it's gonna end the world from the second one and i was like but who cares? Like, they're, they're all like world ending things, but I would rather have what Lee was talking about, which is like the sneakers level and the Mission Impossible 1 level. Like, oh, this is a crazy reveal. Because Mission Impossible 1 was like the, the knockless, right? Like the, the secret identity of the people. Yeah. And it was really, it was Mission Impossible 1 had that sneakers vibe. It was yeah. more, it was oh, yeah. like, it was more about intrigue and, and like, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't an action movie as you mentioned before. You know, it had action scenes, but it, it felt like a, a spy movie, a fun spy movie. Whereas now it's 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 veering much closer to just big tentpole action blockbuster territory. And I 
I, I know they had some cool scenes. Like I loved that fake out scene when um, Henry Cavill thought he was talking to the bad guy, but it turned out to be Simon Pegg in a mask. Spoiler. Mm. Um, I love that. That that was sort of the intrigue, but I just want him to go further. Um, well, we're at a point yeah. where we know that it's going to happen. Every one of these movies has um, the backstabbing character, and I actually thought it was kind of interesting in this one where they basically revealed it early. Like when Henry Cavill flipped that phone over and it wasn't broken, it was basically anybody who's pay, half paying attention now realizes, okay, this movie has to prove to me that Henry Cavill's not the bad guy. And so they ended up like kind of double-deceiving us by making... Henry Cavill, right. the ultimate bad guy, the one with the you know the who wrote the beautiful um, article and or whatever and and once the manifesto yeah, but like what I thought was what I thought made three so good was the fact that like the the rabbit's foot is the only one that I can actually recall by name the only maybe it's yeah, the only I don't one know that what it is th- that's what I'm getting at that's maybe it's the only one that had a name but one of the things that I think made that movie so good was it was all about tracking down this thing we didn't quite know what it was capable of. We just knew it was probably bad. And then at the very end of the movie, they're like, oh, will you tell me what it is? And then he's like, I'll tell you after my vacation or some shit. And we never find out. Meanwhile, all yeah, these other movies, like the first five minutes, yeah, yeah, a whole 60 second, like the worst part of Fallout is this one 60 second stretch in the very, very beginning. When they're just going on and on and on about these plutonium balls. And I'm like, I don't think I need to care about this. Can we not do this so early in the movie? Like, There's no chance in hell I need you to keep talking about why Ethan Hunt needs to stop three plutonium devices from reaching terrorists. I get it. It's fine. Like, I know Ethan Hunt's job is to save the world. Ultimately, though, I don't really ever get the sense that he really cares about the world. He just wants to make sure that he just does the thing he's chosen to do, whatever the mission is. And I, so, <laughs> and, and what's even better is that by the end of the movie, he wasn't even doing it to save the world. He was doing it to save his ex-wife, whatever you want to call her. Um, you know, so, so they are doing a good job of, like, of personalizing these issues, these missions for him. And that was always, I think, that's always the challenge with movies about, spies and superheroes and anything is giving them a personal stake in in the the situation that they're in and that's why the team is so important there there is a real chance here because fallout's been such a success i think i think i'm really excited about the next one because i feel like you know all of a sudden there's all this pressure on the filmmakers and and tom cruise to match fallout you know if it's if it's about being as good as your last film, I, I love the idea that they're going to try and outdo. Like, it's interesting. I have an interesting view of Bond because I my favourite Bond movie is Skyfall and I, I think that's the best one by far. And I, and I, so I don't know which number Skyfall was, but let's say it was like the 17th Bond movie. It or you know the 25th bond movie it's it took them that in in my mind that means it took 25 movies to really hit their stride yeah. like sky skyfall to me was if you look at um if you if you look at bond movies as a series of 
elements. Like we have, as we have a bunch of iconography that we have to do. So the first one is the opening action scene. Then the second piece of James Bond iconography is the opening credits and the song. And then, then, then there's the, 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 the theme, the love interest. And then there's the villain and there's all these little, and each movie repeats those same beats. They all have the same beats and they do their versions of them. To me, Skyfall was the one where every single one of those beats was the best it's ever been. Like the action scene at the start was the best opening action scene in my opinion. The song was the best of all the Bond songs. Yeah. I, I yeah. just like the, the opening credits, the graphic design is incredible for any movie, but to me by far the best Bond opening credit design. And then the villain to me was the best of all the Bond villains. And I know there's a lot of Bond fans out there who, who, who would listen to this and go, what the hell are you talking about? You don't know shit. You know, obviously Sean Connery's better. Obviously Blofeld was better. I just don't agree with that. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a vintage Bond person who thinks the Connery ones were best. I think Skyfall was the best by far. And so they sort of fell off with Spectre. But I guess what I'm saying is the fact that it, it just makes me excited for the next Mission Impossible movie and makes me feel like they could make three more movies as good as Fallout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is, I mean... No, no, I want to. I want to say first things first. As a Bond fan, I actually agree with you on Skyfall, which is kind of amazing because I wouldn't have thought, That's great. you know, <laughs> by this point it would have like hit everything on the head. But Sky- I love Skyfall, and I'm like a purist from the early ones too. Um, and I and actually that's my point with with Fallout is that, and maybe this is actually perhaps because they have McQuarrie doing it twice for his second one is that I feel like he finally fully understood the essence and all the pieces of the Mission Impossible franchise, but also built them all within and around this action in a way that it all came together better than any almost anything else we've seen. Like, I could argue for the first one and the third one as my other favorites, but for Fallout, like, I think he finally understood everything, and I, th- I think he actually, like, went back and watched all of them and then made Fallout, because there's also all the nods to the original and the earlier ones, like, from the climbing scene to Max from the first movie... In this, it's like maybe this is them finally hitting their stride, as you're saying, with Mission Impossible. And from here, please make more, but also keep McQuarrie because I think he understands it now in in collaboration with Tom Cruise together, like the, the what do you want to call them, like brain children now of Mission Impossible. Yeah, that brain trust of Mission Impossible. And yeah. I don't think there's any doubt that it'll be McQuarrie. It would be so insane, like... um. For him not to do it, it would have to be him refusing. Like the studio would be like, "All right, Chris, let's go, <laughs> let's do." And 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 uh, and that's. I think you're exactly right. I think I think having that continuity of the same writer and director means they they are hitting their stride, and they'll hopefully they'll just keep kind of drilling down on what's great about it. And, yeah. and you know, Alex, I think there's one thing you're you're overestimating is how much he watched the previous ones because if he really watched two, then Ethan Hunt would have done at least two front flip kick moves to to disable Henry Cavill. I'm very disappointed that he's just completely forgotten about his ability to do complete karate moves, uh, flips and all that good shit. I mean, he, you know, that those are good moves. He's just leaving on the table, but. But um, I want to I want to bring up one topic that I wanted to discuss today, since we're you know we're sort of running close to the end here, and I, I want to talk about the Dark Knight connection, and I think that anybody watching that movie, 
look, before I say this, it's very easy for people to compare every action movie to Dark to The Dark Knight. It's just this thing people do. But for the first time, I had honest flashbacks to The Dark Knight while watching a different movie. I felt like it was truly in the DNA of this one. And not just because there were obvious call-outs, like the way that they were the road was blocked and they had to go to sort of like the lower whacker yeah. scene. Yes. And, and you know, I think that was probably, I, I honestly think that that was a legitimate hat tip to The Dark yeah, Knight being an influence. But, I, I felt the same way. I felt it had to be because it was so uh, obvious. It was so upfront about what, it, you know, right. such an obvious and 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 Alex, you even mentioned uh, we were texting about this the other day or whatever, and you said there's even a Two Face cameo at the end because because <laughs> half his face burned yeah, off. Yeah, absolutely. I, you yeah. know what? You're right. I didn't even I, I saw that, but I didn't put it together. Like you, you, for me, the for me the main thing that reminded me of Dark Knight was just that sweeping kind of IMAX grandeur of like here's the whole situation, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, I think there's a, a lot to be said about the pacing of the movie, too, and about the fact that when there was a moment, a break for dialogue, that dialogue was all about getting to the core of what's driving the characters. It was never sort of super, superfluous. And, you know, not every time was the writing as, you know, deep and thoughtful as The Dark Knight may have been because that was about something different. But, like, I think that... I, I, I I think that we finally hit a point where the Dark Knight can actually be influential to filmmakers in a way that allows those films to still stand on their own and take cherry pick the actual good parts of the Dark Knight. It's not like oh you have to be darker or oh you have to um, have a villain who is sympathetic. It, it's a it's it's a lot of stuff to learn from Dark Knight action wise and beats that I think this one took and that's a really good thing. And, and it, it refreshes us a little bit. Like, we need to stop looking 10 years in the past for movies to reference and start thinking about making new ones that can be the new reference points. And I think, like you said earlier, Lee, that this could be one of those movies that does change the course a little bit for action movies and starts to say, hey, you, you need to respect the audience more and put these people in positions that they've never been in before physically and actually do the stunts. And yeah. on top of that, you need to make stunts that are crazier and more wild than people can imagine on their own sofa. Yeah, for sure. Like, I <laughs> I feel like other action movies going forward are going to have to, are going to have to keep fallout in the rearview mirror. Like, what are we going to do here? That is, I mean, we've reached a certain point with superhero movies, like, I've got a bit of superhero fatigue and the Marvel the Marvel movies are so encased in CGI and they're so driven by these by CGI that I, I feel like Fallout just really stands apart for that reason. And and um I it, it's Well, I'm I'm brought back to like just yesterday I was reading I think I think it was one of the VFX guys from Avengers was asked uh how much of Spider-Man when he's in a suit is CGI? And his answer was every single frame. He is never on screen as Spider-Man that is not 100% fully CGI. And I'm like, okay, so... It's basically, you're basically watching an animated movie. 
Mm. Right. And and it's not that Tom Cruise's acting is required during the, you know, action sequences. Like, yes, when he's doing the spin move in the middle of that Paris circle and you watch the behind-the-scenes clips and you see that they actually put a lot of effort in that being real, um, it's not that his reaction is what's driving our excitement for the scene. It's the fact that the camera can get up close and still be in the single shot, and you can say, that's him. It's not Natalie Portman's face being put on a ballerina. It's Tom fucking Cruise doing his thing, being chased on real streets with a real camera. And, like, it brings me back. Like, it always brings me back to the camera. The camera can't lie, right? The, the, you can cheat what we're seeing on screen, but if the camera work is done in a way that allows you to replace characters' faces or allows you to, you know, do CGI, yeah. we feel that. When it's handheld or on a car and moving at high speeds, you can't fake that. 100%. I just, yeah, it's just... I mean, having done Upgrade, an action movie myself, with a, with a lower budget to work with, but definitely doing fight scenes and car chases, you want to be doing it. You want to actually be doing it. And you yeah. want you want the actors to be doing the fights, you know. That's what we did with Upgrade, you know, with with hardly any money or time. We trained the actors to fight so that we didn't have to use stuntmen. And I, yeah, can I ask you a question? Was there was there almost like a more of an excitement with your cast and crew to do that to make it more real, like with with these kind of movies, even with like the Raid and other movies where they do practical are not, is it now like if you come with someone and you say, hey, we want to shoot this real, they're actually like, okay, I'm more excited to do this? Yeah, so excited. They're so excited. Nobody likes working with CG. Nobody, <laughs> nobody likes standing on a set in front of a green screen. It's just, it's not fun. It's, 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 it, maybe it's fun for the CGI artists and maybe when you see the finished product, but it's, you, the crews just get so excited when you say we're going to do this for real. This brings up a question I wanted to ask you as well. Um, as a director, what's the conversation that you have to have with a stuntman who's on set ready to be the, the stunt double for an actor when the actor is doing it for real? Like, Do you have to talk down a stuntman to say, like, look, man, you do great work, but they are not going to believe it if it's you. It's got to be him. I, I mean, I didn't find that with Upgrade. I only really have Upgrade to speak of. But um, uh, we had an amazing uh, stunt coordinator, Chris Anderson, who's kind of a legend in Australia. And, and the whole team that he kind of put together were great. And they were so up for... Um, they were so up for the actors doing it themselves. It wasn't like I had to be convinced. They, 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 they seemed like they in certain instances, wanted the actors to do it, you know, rather than, than them. So um, it's, it's, it's just something, you know, it's, it's interesting that, that doing things practically has become the exception to the rule. Like it, 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 it's almost so rare now that it becomes a marketing uh, point. Like when Dunkirk came out, I remember there was all this excitement that it was all practical. It's practical. Um, you know, I think Christopher Nolan is another director like Chris McQuarrie with these who 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 wants to do it practically. He doesn't avoid CG, and there's something um, there's just something really appealing about that. There's you know that to, that you to know that you're going to sit in the theater and watch something that actually happened. 
You know, uh, I love it. Well, it's never a bad thing to drop Christopher Nolan's name. We're all fans of him here. But, you know, uh, one last question for you, um, since we're sort of briefly on the topic of upgrade here. You know, um, one thing that I thought was so incredibly unique about it was the decision to have the camera be involved in the action, right? And this is something that we've gotten a really small taste of here and there in certain movies, but, like, it, it brings me back to the conversation about, look, Skyfall is all three of our favorite Bond movies. And I, I honestly wonder if one of the reasons is because of the man behind the camera, behind the lens itself. And, and I think the same thing can go for some other action movies that when you really start to take action movies seriously, a lot of times I think people um, don't realize that part of it is because the cinematography was taken seriously. And when you think about movies that are like really good, entertaining movies that are fun and great, but they're not really great films or, or whatever you want to do to differentiate right. the two. It's like it's, the difference is usually the focus on being creative and, and taking serious pride in camera work. And it seems Absolutely. like you did that with Upgrade. Well, yeah, I was so inspired by um, Skyfall and The Dark Knight. Like Stefan Ducio, the cinematographer, and I, we, we love um, films that that are artful in their cinematography. You know, I, for me, why wouldn't you want to make every part of a film amazing? Like, you know, it doesn't make sense to me to have a great script and then go, well, let's just put the camera on sticks and shoot it. Like, or, you know, every part of it, I want to be great. And so I think, you know, those movies you mentioned, I think a big part of the reason they're so revered is that cinematography. You know, Roger Deakins shot Skyfall and he just made it look so beautiful. Like each each scene is so beautifully designed and each scene has its own palette, but it all fits into the overall picture. And The Dark Knight is the same. It's, um, it, it, you know, these are, I, I, you know, I don't want to name names, but I, I don't know if the Marvel movies have that same artfulness when it comes to their cinematography. You know, I, I don't feel that a lot of them. You know, my, my favourite Marvel movie is still the first Iron Man movie. That's my favourite of everything. And um, I feel like um, I, I, I hope that the Mission Impossible really leans into that and, and um, makes that a valuable part because I think you're right. It is a huge, huge reason why these action films can step up and, be better than, you know, they can just, you know, as they say, like transcend the genre and become these great films is just by looking amazing, you know? I had to to look up who it was on Fallout because I didn't even know. Rob Hardy? He also shot Ex Machina and Annihilation. Yeah, he's He's not as well known as (laughs) as other of the cinematographers on the list that we're referencing, but he's done the work. But, yeah, he's a great choice. I mean, they made a choice of somebody who'd done – some sm- some smaller stuff that was indie, and that's I feel like that's always great, you yeah. know, um, to, to get someone a little outside the outside the box. Sometimes it can backfire. Like Thor is ninety five percent at a forty five degree angle. There's no fucking reason for that. There was just there was just there was just no reason for it ever. And uh, and I'm still like I'm still hurt about it today. I really Turn wanted to love the, yeah the first Thor. The whole movie is canted, the whole thing. God. It's so frustrating still to me today. I watch that movie at an angle. 
you know, it can backfire if you take too much of an effort to be different and unique unless it makes sense story-wise. The, the doing that for the scene in Mission Impossible 1 that you mentioned earlier um, made that scene discom- uncomfortable and, and concerning because we were up close and personal and the cameras were at a tilt and all that. And that's what makes that kind of stuff unique. So it, it's a, there's a fine line. And I think some people watching movies can sense it and some don't. And, you know... I, I'm excited, like you said, for the next one, and I thought your ideas for what they should do for the for the next Mission Impossible were really valid, good ideas. Um, I'd like to throw in the hat there that they really need to shoot Tom Cruise into outer space. I don't think that this is a question anymore. Um, I mean, we're at a point, let's be honest with ourselves, um, he's pretty much done everything you can do on this planet. I've seen a lot of jokes on Twitter about volcanoes. But I, uh, I think, I think it, it makes total sense to have uh, some kind of hacked satellite and then the only way that they can disarm it is do it by hand. And they, he goes out into space and he spacewalks yeah. and they actually <laughs> does it. It's going to be Tom Cruise. He is going to go to space. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure it will cost $80 million for that one scene. But it will be worth what? it. It will be it well will. worth it. Let's get Elon Musk to, to do it. Exactly. That's that's perfect. Um, well, guys, this uh, has been so fun. I uh, who knew we could just talk about Mission Impossible movies for an hour, but it's totally possible because they're so great. Yeah, for it's sure. It's Miss Possible. <laughs> I want to. If you have two seconds, I want to ask you: What's your final ranking on the movies? What is your your, your least favorite and your worst favorites? Talk I'm to gonna you. go Fallout number one, uh, uh, the original film number two then Rogue Nation, then Three, then Ghost Protocol, then Two. Okay, good. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, um, thank you for joining us. This has been great. Um, I'm always glad to get a different perspective, but especially a perspective from a filmmaker and from a screenwriter and from someone who, who is also a movie geek. So this was, this was great to have. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, just, um, yeah, drop me a line the next time you want to, uh, bullshit about a different franchise. Maybe it can just all be about sneakers next time. Just an hour on sneakers. Dude, can I, I would, I, can I, I admit something short. to you guys right now? I'm going to do it. You've you, never seen it? I've never seen it. Mike, this is why it's a perfect episode is that you will watch it. And then we'll talk about it. I will say, you know, Sneakers is one of those kind of uh, early 90s movies that is just serviceable. Like, it's not going to blow your mind. It doesn't, but in terms of like, whoa, but it's just such a fun, fun movie. And um, I always think of it, just stays with me. So definitely watch it. You'll thank us later. Yeah, we'll do an episode on it. <laughs> but yes. okay. And, um, and as always, they can find you on Twitter, right? What's your Twitter? Me? Uh, yeah, uh, L1L. Uh, is just uh, my Twitter handle, and um, yeah, I'm on there with a tick, a little blue tick, so you know it's me. Awesome. Uh, cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Cheers, man. Later. Bye.